Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. This episode is syndicated with our sports podcast show, Off Field. You're unlikely to have ever heard a current AFL coach like this before. We had the privilege of sitting down with Geelong Premiership coach Chris Scott for two hours, and we're sharing the whole interview with you uncut over two episodes. This is not just a typical footy chat. If you lead a team, have an interest in high performance and want to know how the best in the business operate, you'll get a lot out of this. As a broad snapshot, part one of the interview focuses on coaching, including the story of Chris's rapid rise to the top, while in part two we talk about the keys to high performance and leadership and focus in on Chris's personal learnings, habits and influences. The Brisbane Lions dual premiership player says he didn't want to be a coach. After finishing his playing career, Chris took an offer to be an assistant at Fremantle because he thought it might be his one and only chance to give coaching a shot and fell in love with the job almost instantly. Less than three years later, at just 34 years old, he was being shortlisted for senior coach opportunities, but wasn't even sure he wanted the top job even two weeks before accepting the role at the Cats. In Chris's own words, he was unbelievably unprepared. You can't blame him for not rushing into the gig. There wouldn't be many jobs with higher scrutiny and less stability than that of an AFL senior coach. This hit home for Chris when his great mate, Brenton Sanderson, was sacked by the Crows. Chris is philosophical about his volatile world. However, the human impact of the position on those around him, particularly his young daughter, weighs heavy. Chris is candid, thoughtful and refreshingly steers clear of cliches. He also talks about the evolution of coaching, gives a rare insight into performance reviews, his workflow, and much more. Now enjoy part one of our chat with Chris Scott. I'm going to jump straight in to the world of coaching. What is the purpose of an AFL senior coach? I've never had it put to me like that. Um, I think some people would answer that it's to serve the football club and by extension um, the members who still um, in our system, it's quite rare um, by global sporting standards, the members effectively um, own the club. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got a, somewhere around 50,000 members and some clubs in the AFL have 70 or 80, so there's obviously a diverse group there. Um, I tend to look at it, uh, that's definitely a factor, um, but my focus is probably more on the obligation I have to the people internally at the club um, and most importantly, um, the players. So that, that's probably one um, area that I'm aware of with my style that when I'm under pressure or the club's under pressure, um, my go-to is to defend our players, uh, kind of like you would a best mate. You know, even when you know they're wrong, you still defend them. But more specifically, the purpose, um, like – when you talk to people internally and you're, and you're um, articulating w- what your role is, um, is your role to provide the vision? Is, it, is your role to provide the game plan? Is your, is your role to deal with spot fires? As a, like, what, what, what do you see the purpose in that sense? Oh, well, it's all of those things. I mean, on a practical sense, um, it's never been more acute uh, than now in AFL circles that the head coach – um, is responsible for, um, along with the GM of footy, I would say, um, the operations of the football department. So that involves the people um, outside of the business um, operations of the club. So the CEO is clearly in most um, teams, and I should only speak about ours really, 
Um, but the CEO is clearly the head of the organisation and the boss. Um, the GM of football is clearly the head of the football department. Um, and in turn, he's my direct report and my boss. Um, but when there's a failing of the football department, the coach is the most public face of that. And it's, as I said, it's never really been more obvious um, because of what we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, so you, it's not a situation where you can say, well, I'm only responsible for um, the performance of the team on game day and, and what the players do in the training program. It's, it's much more broad than that. And we have nine coaches um, that have varying roles of autonomy and areas of responsibility. But uh, I think my role really is to help organise and facilitate them and the players. And, and we, like most clubs, run a, um, a system where the players are empowered to have a say in how we go about things. And, you know, at least in my opinion, um, if it's a 50-50 decision between what I want and what the players want, um, you know, almost certainly would go with the players, um, you know, because they're ultimately the ones that have to get it done. And if they don't believe in it, well, they believe they're being pushed into something that um, they think isn't the best plan, they're probably going to struggle to execute it. Um, so it's a long-winded way of saying um, that it's very, very broad, but ultimately the way our team plays um, has to be not dictated by me, um, but I, I need to believe it. I can't say... Um, when questions about questioned about the way we attack, um, sorry, our offensive coach looks after that. You know, so it's 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 more facilitation than it's ever been. And I'm going into my seventh year as a head coach. I had three years before that as an assistant. Um, we have a very collegiate approach at Geelong, but ultimately, as I said, it's never been more clear. Uh, the head coach needs to be across everything, and um, it needs to at least um, be aware of it, if if not dictating it. And I guess speaking more generally, how has the role of the senior coach evolved over the years, perhaps when you reflect on what it was when you were playing through to what it is now? Yeah, it's an interesting question and I'm probably not the best person in the competition. I'm certainly not the best person in the competition to answer it. I'm, I'm only 40. I've, I've been in the role um, for a relatively short period of time. I was an assistant coach for a very short period of time um, historically before getting a head coaching position. But Probably the best reflection that I can give is going back a, a generation before that as a player. I started at Brisbane at the end of 93. My first season was 94 as a 17-year-old. Um, and three or four years into my career, Lee Matthews came uh, as a head coach. Um, so that was, I think that was for the 99 year. We'd finished on the bottom of the ladder the, um, the year before. Um, and he brought with him um, three assistant coaches. Um, which was revolutionary at the time. Um, prior to that, or um, well, say my first year with Robert Walls, I think he had a part-time assistant coach. So the evolution from the coach being all-powerful and literally running everything um, to today where we have most clubs would have minimum nine coaches, probably more. Um, so uh, any coach now, and I think probably Lee Matthews and Mick Malthouse, the, the, the guys of that era, were the ones that had to evolve the most because they went from I have to do everything or it doesn't get done to now my job is more about facilitation and delegation, um, which is a real challenge when you've always done it yourself. And so you're saying that not in the sense of um, their buzzwords. It, it truly happens. I mean, you you truly provide a framework, you facilitate. I mean, it's easy to say this stuff yeah. um, uh, and I'm just focusing obviously on Geelong and, and yourself, but... Um, can you explain 
I mean, how much time you'd spend with players uh, as a senior coach and and one-on-one? Yeah, I can, um, and it varies for um, every player. I had it put to me the other day that if you remove the managerial side um, with the coaches and um, medical staff and con- conditioning staff, et cetera, and just focus on the players, I've got 46 direct reports, um, which um, ultimately, um, you know, in, in a in a theoretical um situation those guys should direct to their assistant coaches and um, development coaches um, but in every performance review that I've done and I suspect every everyone that I will do into the future um, the last point I'll put on there in my notes is endeavor to spend more time one-on-one with the players and that's what they invariably ask as well most of the time I would say when things aren't going well or around delistings or um semi-forced retirements if that's if there's such a thing um if there's critical feedback it's would have liked to spend a little more time one-on-one with a coach and can i say when you speak to assistant coaches that's their want as well and speak to conditioning staff that's what they would like as well um so you're right those those words can um, be misinterpreted and we're still on the journey of trying to work out exactly what those things mean to us um what we are clearer on now than we ever were is that delegation doesn't come without accountability you can't have it any other way so if you want um, or provided autonomy in your role um, and room to use your own workflow to achieve those outcomes you're going to be held more accountable than you would be if the head coach or the gm of footy was a micromanager just a follow-up question i can't help myself part of the reason of off field is to i guess give people an insight into things that, that may not be discussed in the media at, at sort of snippet level. What is it like as a senior coach going through a performance review? Is it a, is it a standard performance review? Do you, do, you, do you have a job description? I mean, how does that actually work? Yeah, it's not many people ask me that question. Uh, and I suspect that it changes depending on who uh, the GM of footy is at the time. So we've, in my experience, Neil Baum uh, was the first um, Steve Hocking is the current um, GM. He was there as assistant GM before Barmy. And Brian Cook's been the CEO all the way through. But um, to be honest, our organisation, I think, has ebbed and flowed a little bit there. And that, um, I think, is a good thing because it more reflects the, um, the style of those individuals as opposed to some rigid club-wide policy that, um, you know, can potentially become a box-ticking exercise. It's probably fresh in my mind because I've just come out of one quite recently. We try to do it, when I say try to do it, um, I, I have two performance reviews uh, a year at least. Um, but and, and this is something that I try to um, pass on to the, the coaches that I deal with and the players um, that I deal with day to day that I don't really hear. I can't remember an occasion in a performance review where I've heard something new. Um, so they tend to be pretty efficient because it's kind of like – as we discussed two days ago, this is something that, you know, we've got to keep our fingers on the pulse with. And it's in the boardroom. Do you go and have a coffee? Do you? It's quite informal. So, and that's our style at Geelong. I'm not saying that it's um, the right way to go necessarily. It's just our way. Um, so it's with the GM of footy, Steve Hocking, who I've got a fantastic relationship with. But I also understand that if the time comes, I should say when the time comes that I'm no longer the right person for the job, he's the one that will be telling me. 
um, which is um, a strange realisation because I'm not closer to anyone in, in footy than him. Oh, well, I guess my twin brother coaches another club, but it's a different relationship um, than, than Steve. Um, but ultimately, I think he will be the one that will say, look, this is just not working for us. Um, yeah, in conjunction with the CEO and the board, obviously, but he's he's really the one that sees what um, happens in my role day in, day out. So there's th- those two guys. Um, yeah, without, without um, giving away any confidential information, we started in Brian Cook's office uh, one week and we finished it the night before the game at a restaurant um, in Tasmania the next week. It sort of was, you know, it was just interesting enough that, that we kept going and going and going and it pretty quickly moves away from the, um, the formality of um, what I think I need to improve on, what the focus areas are, what we've done well, the big picture stuff to really general stuff that is kind of like how do we get how do we get onto this again? So uh, sorry, man. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll just sit here, mate, and listen into you. That's what <laughs> tends to happen. Now go on, no, mate, please. I, I, I'm I, I love this stuff because again, most people perceive coaches as strong, powerful, in control people, and the fact that you've even thought about the person who might tap you on the shoulder at some point. Clearly, the fragility of coaching is is strong, and there is, you know, m- not much security with coaching. So it's just interesting to hear you, you even know that that time is going to come. Yeah, without getting too deep and too personal, uh, it hit home for me. Uh, I was quite close to, very close with Brenton Sanderson, who was an assistant coach at Geelong um, when I arrived. He only coached a year with me because he got the head job um, at the Crows, the Adelaide Crows, uh, the next year. Um, but when when he finished at the Crows, I came home and my wife, Sarah, doesn't really get into footy. She's certainly um, not scrawling um, the AFL website, keeping up with the latest <laughs> news. And I, I came home uh, the day he finished and I said, oh, Sando, um, you know, to use a word I hate, you know, Sando was sacked today. That's just to use, to use the word that they used in the media. And, uh, and she's not that emotional, but she kind of started tearing up a little bit. And I, I, might have, I might have been a bit more harsh than that. I might have said, Sando got sacked today. One day I'll be coming home saying the same thing. And, uh, and, and she got a bit emotional about it, you know, but I'm not too, just a little bit, you know, more edgy than um, she would normally be around those sort of comments. But it sort of hit home that, look, it's not personal. I came to grips with it a long time ago that I'll finish at some point. I think, I think you can, there's such a thing as finishing on good terms. It doesn't always have to be acrimonious. Um, most of the time it is, unfortunately. And I think the industry's slowly coming around um, to the idea that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but yeah, the, probably the realisation, even though I'd come to terms with it, the realisation that um, while it's not personal, it does affect your life completely. So when, when you hear, th- I think most people in the industry who have been in it virtually their whole lives, a whole adult life. I was drafted as a 17-year-old and haven't had a break. Um, the idea of, you know, finishing in your 40s um, and having to find a way to support your family is a bit kind of, yeah, a little bit, and you can prepare as much as possible. And I think I'm relatively rounded, but um, in terms of on-the-job experience, I'd, I'd have to try to relate how um, AFL experience would um, impact a new job as opposed to real um, on-the-job training. We'll talk about the the human impact, I imagine, throughout this chat. But on that, you can be prepared for the fact that you might get tapped on the shoulder at some point. But how do you, I guess, prepare your loved ones around you that 
for exactly that, the fact that you could lose your job in a day and it could be a shock. Yeah, the best way will be to um, finish before uh, my daughter gets to school um, based on what I've heard from other coaches. Um, my, my, my wife's really resilient, has a big circle of friends that um, probably wouldn't even be aware um, if I if I got the flick. You know, they're sort of outside the football world. We've got plenty of people inside the football world as well, but I think she'll be okay. But if I can steer the conversation away from me for a second, there are a number of people that I know and respect in the footy industry that have almost been not driven out but um, have been left with a bad taste in their mouth because of the way their kids in particular have been treated. And it is, I can understand when people say it's not personal because they're talking about the Carlton coach or the Geelong coach, not not the person. But, you know, kids in particular can, you know, um, be quite brutal when it um when your team, especially in, say, a, a two-team town like um, Adelaide or, or Perth, um, you know, the kids are kind of like, hey, you know, stories like, you know, hey, um, when's your dad going to get the sack and, you know, what are you going to do when your family's unemployed? It sounds, when I say these things, I always am pretty quick to um, add on that we're extremely fortunate. So it's not a matter of, um, you know, um, crying poor, um, particularly with me, I've, I've fallen on my feet at Geelong. I only had three years as an assistant and walked into a club that supported me as well as um, any club possibly could. Um, but it's just in, in answering that question, you know, how do you deal with or, or how do you try to prepare yourself um, for the inevitable? And it is the inevitable. Um, I'm not sure that I've come up with the right answer there other than to say um, I'm very, very confident that even if I feel like I've been hard done by, I'll reflect more on um, the the support that I got and the, the positives rather than um, the reverse. And I think that's really hard in the moment because, you know, we've had that experience as a player, you know, very, very rarely do players finish thinking completely understand and I agree with where you're at. Most of the time because you're competitive and you've spent probably half your career trying to kid yourself that um, this injury won't hold me up too much and even though these young guys are getting better, I'm still, I'm still better than they are. It's not, it's not the real world a lot of the time, which I suspect in part is why the transition from playing to the rest of your life is quite hard. Perfect segue. I want to take you back to your last year of playing and you're scanning your options, trying to work out what you want to do with the next chapter in your life. Um, did you always want to be a coach when you got to Fremantle? Were you set on being a senior coach? What was going through your mind? Well, I wasn't set on being a senior coach um, a fortnight before I was appointed to Geelong. It all, and it all happened pretty quickly and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary of that at some stage if you're interested. But through my playing career, um, I, I will say that while I never thought I was defined by football, I did think about it a lot. Uh, and, and my twin brother was probably a bit similar in that respect. You know, always, I think we always felt that, um, you know, we, we had an idea of how the game should or could be played. Um, and, you know, over time, um, I think I developed that to an extent without any real eye to putting it into practice as a coach. Um, and midway through my career, we'd had a lot of success at Brisbane through that middle part of my, my career, sort of 24, 25, 26, um, I started to struggle with, with injuries and the last five or six years were a real struggle um, to the point where I kind of, whether I did I lose my passion for footy, I, I think it was pretty close 
Um, not because um, of anything you know, outside of my own issues, but it was more, you know, it was just such a struggle to get on, on the park when I did play. Um, and there was a lot of time, you know, in rehab, just constantly being sore and not being able to do, um, you know, what I knew I could do um, if I was injury free. Um, so by the end of it, I was probably one of those rare examples of a player who who knew that they were they were done. Um, and if in, on reflection, I probably played a year too long, and the club was good enough to support me uh, in that. But I, I was um, I was I was more relieved than anything after my last game. So it was almost, and it, this sounds really ungrateful, and I, I hope it doesn't. But I was almost like, thank God that's over. Like I can just go and do something something else. Um, hopefully unrelated to footy and get a bit better perspective on life. Um, but I got some really good advice, um, which I've passed on to a few players um, who have been in a similar position, which was in deciding what you're going to do next, just don't say no to anything straight away. And that, that, that led me to some quite strange things that I knew I'd never, ever do, but, you know. Like were any, other, any of the conversations? Like what, what did you consider in that, in that period? Oh, well, one example, leading teams were um, – you know, prominent organisation at the time, um, and, and they d- do some amazing things. Did some amazing things back then, but um, so much of that program, as is any leadership program, um, you know, is um, it succeeds or fails based on um, the the quality of the people who are involved. So the facilitators, um, but more importantly, the people within the club, and, and mostly, you know, the the uh, the senior players. Um, and there were some things that I just wouldn't do if I were in that position. Um, but that, so you considered leading teams? Well, they, they asked me to come to a sort of training day and I thought there's just this is just one in a million, but I've kind of committed to this idea that I won't say no to anything straight away, so I'll go and get a feel for what it's about. Um, and I walked out and thinking, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. And, and, again, I still think reflecting on it, that, that, that I learned something that day that I didn't know beforehand, um, more than more than that I didn't want to do it. Um, they actually had some some good stuff in there as well. Um, but in this spirit of, you know, not ruling out anything straight away, a couple of clubs, more than a couple of clubs, um, had made contact. It was one of those years where there were a lot of head coaches that moved on. And by extension, that means that there are a lot of um, assistant coaching positions up for grabs because in that period, what tended to happen was the new coach came in and all the assistants went. It doesn't happen so much anymore. It certainly doesn't or didn't happen at our club when when I arrived at, at Geelong. Um, but I sat down with these clubs and um, the, the more – there were two parts to it. The more I heard from them, the more I thought, if I don't do this now, there's a fair chance I'll never do it and never know. Um, and the other part that was probably more compelling was my twin brother had started at Collingwood the year before and while he was probably more – focused on staying in footy than I was he still it wasn't it wasn't his sole aim and he surprised himself with how much he liked it so I kind of came to the conclusion well if he liked it we're pretty similar there's a fair chance I could even though I thought that was unlikely and if I absolutely hated it I could suck up anything for two years so I'd just I'd just have a crack at it and if I didn't like it I could go on safe in the knowledge that well I tried it but it's not for me and within we started at the same time begs at, at Freo within I think I say within a couple of months, but I reckon it was shorter than that. I reckon within within four to six weeks, I was like, yeah, I've rediscovered my passion for this. And, um, you know, even then I think I got the sense that I am a coach who played and, and not all are like that. I think there are – Lee Matthews is a good example. He's the best player of all time, so he's probably 
the extreme example, but he always said he, he was a player who, when he couldn't play anymore, decided, well, the closest I can get to it is coach. Was it about coaching that you loved straight away? So you mentioned you picked it up really quickly and you just knew you loved it. What was it about it? Well, when I say I love the coach, I didn't really understand what the whole coaching um, caper involved um, in totality. I mean, the, the helping players um, is certainly a big part of it, but I wasn't sh- – well, in that period, I had no concept of whether I was actually helping them or not. So I can't say that I got this great satisfaction from taking a player who was struggling a little bit and improving him. I'm not sure I had any impact in the first four to six weeks. My my head was spinning, but it was probably in that, in that moment, for me, it was – uh, the difference between being a player and just desperately trying to escape football. And I think it's still a problem um, today that um, we, I, I'm not going to name the player, but an experienced player that retired at Geelong over the last couple of years, fantastic player. In his last year, he said to me, yeah, and we were going okay. We were, we were well and truly in the eight and he was a really prominent player still. It wasn't as if he was struggling with form. He just said, oh, I'm just hating this. And, and that, was, that was kind of heartbreaking for me as a coach because we set up our program actively to prevent that. Um, it was my experience to an extent. Um, and while I'll never completely admit defeat on it, we kind of acknowledge that um, you, with, you're not going to succeed with every player in, in that respect. Um, it, it, is just, it is just so, um, it is so difficult um, yeah, and it's cutthroat, so you've got to be absolutely committed to it. But when things aren't going your way, I think the norm probably for most players, even the successful ones, when you're out of the club, try to get away from footy. You've got the, the odd ones that just are footy nuts and they'll watch footy games five times a weekend and you know, know what's going on. But I think most of them relish their time not thinking about it. And I was certainly one of those towards the end. It wasn't to say that I didn't think about how we could play better as a team, but I just didn't want to consume it nonstop. And within three months, I was consuming it nonstop and I was watching vision. I think it um, terrifies some players now when they think about moving into coaching. They're like, I'd love to do it and I'd love to work with players out on the park and help them. But I don't really want to spend 80 hours a week behind a computer. Uh, And I think most of the ones that have success are the ones that sort of dread it a little bit, get into it and say, I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I'm actually seeing stuff that I'd never seen before. Uh, and even even in those early days at Fremantle, I was kind of like, I wish I had have known this stuff <laughs> when I was playing. I would have been so much um, better. But even now, I'm not sure that I would have been because there's that balance. You can get so stuck in um, the complexity uh, that it it sort of takes away from your instinct as a as a person and a player. Um, so, what I love about Coaching now is completely different to what I loved uh, back then. It was more getting into it and, and my eyes being open to um, something that I didn't know was there. And it's a really hard conversation to have with players because you can sound like begs, you know, you, you might think you know what's going on now, but wait until you coach, you know, you've, <laughs> you, then you'll really know. Like, so trying to sort of articulate that a little more. Uh, Pleasantly. Uh, yeah, w- w- without the same level of condescension um, is a challenge. But, yeah, it's it's probably defined a little bit of who I am um, now as a coach. Um, I think the the cue for me to move on and do something else now will be when I think I've got this sussed. I kind of really know what I'm doing. I know what it's about. Uh, I've said to you a couple of times that the more that I 
it's not just footy stuff, but just you know, the more you research great leaders, great organisations, the more you realise there's so much that I don't know. Um, and that's, I think that's a healthy thing. Um, and yet the players temptation now is to want to interview you based on you know it all. So, yeah. you know, listeners will want to <laughs> go, tell us what you do in this situation because, you know, you do it, you, you lead, you, you win, you succeed, you perform at a high level. Well, we fail um, at least as often as we succeed. Um, and and I, I, when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about um, win-loss and Lee Matthews, um, you know, my great coach at Brisbane said, you know, if you if you win three out of every four weeks, you'll be the best coach in the history of the game. Like it's just you're going to lose regularly and you've got to kind of get used to that. But So when I say you, you lose a lot, um, you look back on decisions you make um, with the benefit of hindsight, as the Mondays experts do after every weekend, and go, oh, it was so simple. And it is after the fact. So with your decision-making on players and programs and how hard to train and whether we should push this guy who's got a bit of an injury um, niggle, very rarely they come out and go, yep, nailed that one. That was perfect, um, which is, you know, obviously I'm not telling anyone something they don't know here, but that's that's kind of how you learn. You, you just keep keep refining and, and reviewing um, and then trying to improve it next time, safe in the knowledge that you probably won't nail it, but hopefully you get a little bit closer. So you, you begin to discover a passion for coaching and you're learning a lot and you're you know, you're in the Fremantle system and program. How did you begin to balance an ambition to want to be a senior coach and fly off and, and, and you know, run a program with the need to contribute in a really compelling way within a current system? And, and how do you talk to your assistant coaches who potentially might be in the same boat? Yeah, uh, thanks for going back to that because I didn't answer your initial question. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be a senior coach. Uh, I, I didn't want to be an assistant coach. I just um, I got an offer and I accepted it because I thought if I don't do it, um, I'll never know um, whether I could have done it, whether I would have been good at it. Um, my brother, funnily enough, um, was appointed the head coach at North Melbourne after only three years at, at Collingwood. Um, he didn't really think he was ready to be a senior coach sort of two and a half years in, but the opportunity presented the first inkling I got was about halfway through my third year, Port Adelaide made a coaching change early in the year. So they had this long period of time to sort of work through a detailed process around appointing the new coach, um, ended up appointing an internal um, candidate. Um, but I, I, from what I understand, I was one of a short list of probably about 100, which is not that short. Um, and sort of slowly over a period of time, sort of it was – it was whittled down to to the point where I kind of sort of looked around and thought hey, there aren't there actually aren't that many left, and I was really going through it to be brutally honest for the experience because you sort of had no idea how they go about it, what, what's involved, and I was really raw, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have uh, got the Geelong job if I didn't go through that process with Port. It was you know if if nothing else, it was just just good practice. Um, one, the delivery is not so important, but it's more just getting to know um, who you are and, and what you value and. You know, long story short, with the Geelong part, it was kind of like I was under the impression, which really helped me, that they were going <laughs> to appoint an internal candidate as well. Um, and uh, my, I say my manager, he's sort of a friend who was helping me at the time. I'm not even sure that I paid him, but he was the one who got the approach <laughs> from um, Geelong. And I, I really pressed him to say, look, I, is this a waste of time? Because the port process was so involved and it was 
you know, I felt like I needed to think twice if I was going to go through that again. Geelong was a bit unique in that their coach decided to finish at the end of the year after the final series. It was kind of it was a bit of a race against time to to get someone in the seat. So they only had four candidates. Um, the other three were internal, um, and it was really really short. Um, so he said, "Look, no, they are serious." He he really pressed them. He had a good relationship with Neil Barton. Really pressed them to say, "Look, unless you're serious, like you know, I don't think you should put this young guy." through it um they first spoke to me on a sunday and appointed me on the friday mm. did i answer your question the the, the balancing the, balancing ambition yeah and and then playing the role so i can't really speak to that from experience but i can speak to it um in terms of what i advice i would give others and um, I think we have a f- couple of um, coaches in particular at Geelong that would make outstanding head coaches at some point. They've got to work through whether they want to do it um, because there's so much more than can I coach a team. Um, and I think there are even a few without naming names in the competition now that would say, if you could just strip out four or five of these things, I would love it. But because of those things, I, I really don't love it as much as I should. Um, so that, that is a strong consideration because it can, um, especially if you're young, and this was a, was a concern for me. I was, how old was I, 34, maybe turning 35. So, yeah, there was a strong possibility, especially uh, in the climate of the day, and it hasn't really changed that much. You know, there's, there'll always be a portion of the football public that um, is baying for blood. Um, you know, you only need to look at the, the stories that get the most traction. It's player movement or coaches getting sacked. You know, they're, they're the ones that really get people up and about. So I understand why there's interest in it, but it was really a concern that I could have been in the system early and out of the system really early and then, you know, you kind of damaged goods um, to an extent. So you've got to work out whether you're prepared for all those things. But, but the other thing was, in my experience, I got some really good advice on this. If you do have aspirations, that's fine. Be careful talking about it too much. Because I think that does signal to the organisation that you're in that you're only using them as a stepping stone, which can rub people up the wrong way, even if it's not intended. Um, and the best way that you can um, promote yourself is to do a good job and let others talk about you, which was my experience. I only I know now, but I had no idea at the time. I In 2008, so my first year as an assistant at Frio, I... Um, helped out and and literally that that's what I did I helped out with the Hall of Fame game Victoria played the all-stars I think they were um and Geelong basically ran the game on the Victorian side so Bomber Thompson was a head coach and it was he just I imagine along Steve Hocking was there and imagine they just said well we're just going to use all our own people and kind of the one guy at the AFL as as the story's been relayed to me said you've got to at least have someone <laughs> who's not from Geelong. So they go, oh, there's a – and sort of put up, there's this first-year bloke over at Freo who's actually a Victorian. Why don't, you, why don't you get him to help out? And that's what happened. I kind of sat on the bench. I'm not really sure what I did. I, I was sort of involved. It was fantastic experience though. Um, Bomber Thompson, um, you know, when I heard him speak in the, um, in the pregame, in the meetings during the week, I, I remember coming away thinking that, that's impressive. Like that's that, – that's similar to the way I would do it you know, in some respects. And it was only just a, you know, a snapshot. Um, but as it turned out, Steve Hocking said that I actually got a chance to watch you during that week and liked you. And that, that's the reason I ended up on the Geelong 
shortlist, you know, and as it got whittled down, it sort of made a bit more sense to them because what what I thought would work at Geelong was probably aligned with what they thought as well. So then you need that as well. The the idea, if you're an aspiring head coach, that um, you know you, you're going to um, succeed in every um, say job interview is just so flawed because if you if you take the chameleon approach and adjust your values and your style to what you think the club wants, you just end up a fraud. And if you get the job, that's even worse. So on that, a lot of senior coaches inherit something broken. You didn't. How did you pitch to the Cats and how did you, I guess, approach this in year one? Well, again, it was I was really fortunate because I didn't think I was going to get it. So I went in with um, you know, a, a more relaxed approach um, than I would have if I thought, wow, I'm, you know, this is, this is mine to lose. Um, and I, because there was so little time to prepare, when I say I first spoke to the, the president, two directors, the CEO, Steve Hocking and Neil Baum, who was a GM of footy on, on the Sunday, and I probably had a couple of days to prepare for that. But that was – and it, it soon became clear that Geelong's – system was going to be, or process was going to be different to the one I'd been through before and that they were a pretty relaxed footy club. Um, and I mean relaxed in the most positive sense of the word. It wasn't that it was informal and um, slack. It was just, it was, it was thorough, but it was at Brian Cook's house sitting around a table like this um, with four or five people talking about footy. No real preparation required from me. It's just, so what are your values? What do you think works in a footy club? What what are the red flags? Those sort of things, um, and that you know was quite disarming in a way. I was just able to talk about, and again, I got good good um, advice, which was be authentic. If if you think that you really believe something and they might not like it, say it anyway. Just to jump in and pick up on one of those points, um, what are some red flags within footy clubs that might um, highlight something? Not right. Oh, it, fundamentally, it comes down to misalignment of values, I think. And, and again, that that's so easy to say, um, and it, it's a lot harder to do. And I think um, when you come to alignment on values, you've been through this experience. Sure, I'm sure. Begs you sit down with any group of footballers across 18 teams in the competition. Say, okay, what do you want to stand for? What, what's important to us? They will choose from a list of eight words, I reckon. Maybe ten, if you're lucky. You know, if they want to, you know, an particular group. Well, yeah. they might want to put a semantic spin on a word or two, but they all basically mean the same things. So that's the easy part, and it doesn't differentiate you from any other club. If you think that we've got these great values, um, and aren't they ripping words? Um, you, you're probably setting yourself up to fail because there's so much more to it than that. And I think. You know, actually explaining in real terms, as simply as possible, remembering that. In the 45 players you have on a list, their levels of education, their age, their background is so diverse. Um, sometimes really spelling things out when it comes to things as important as, as, um, as your values uh, is crucial. And I think going with something um, just because you think that's what you're supposed to do, again, just sets you up um, to be inauthentic um, so be, be really clear on whether it's important, and if it is in, if it is important, be really clear on, ha- on on how you actually achieve that. So that that that's the first part, and then the second part is trying to c- get the temperature check regularly. 
um, which I think we all find really difficult because, you know, you, you do we, – we talked about the frog in the boiling water just the other day. You know, the frog jumps into the boiling water and he jumps out straight away. You know, when it whacks you in the face, you know, it's really obvious, hey, we've got to fix that. But when you're in it day-to-day and the temperature's slowly rising, slowly rising, you can get to the point where you don't jump in, jump out, you know, before you, before you boil to death. So um, external people can really help with that. Um, but, you know, for the most part, we, we try to cultivate enough free space for our decision makers so that they can think about this stuff and, and step back and um, have a look at where things really are. So in terms of the jump into the role of senior coach, were you prepared for it? Was it like being hit by a ton of bricks um, or were you kind of, did you surprise yourself about how well you took to it? A bit of both. Um, I was unbelievably unprepared. Um, but you talk about alignment of values and of strategy as well. I had a really clear, and I'm, I still to this day can't work out what the inputs were to get to this stage, but I had a really clear idea of what I thought Geelong should do. And again, I was probably empowered to go in there and just say it because I didn't think it would matter anyway. Um, and it just happened that, at least in terms of strategy, we were pretty aligned. Uh, and, and there was a clear um, decision to be made at Geelong. 2010, the team had won a, um, had lost the prelim final by over 10 goals to Collingwood, who ended up winning the premiership, had had an unbelievable um, period of success, won the premiership 2007, 2009, only lost one game or two games in total, 2008. One of them just happened to be the biggest game of the year, but we're clearly the best team that year. 2010, still finished top four, but we're playing a style that um, Collingwood probably got on top of, at least in that prelim final. Um, and because of that success, the team had a lot of really, really good players who were starting to get older. And when you've got a lot of really good players who are getting older, they tend to be getting paid a fair bit as well. So total player payments management um, is crucial in, in today's footy and something had to give there. And the way the competition's designed, it's really so that clubs who have had that period of success will then tip over the cliff the way the Brisbane Lions did when I was playing there and struggle to get back for a long period of time. But it's intoxicating success. And so... I think historically most clubs who are in that position, just especially if you haven't won a premiership, and that's where it becomes really – it's a bit easier when you've won a couple. So maybe those decisions were a bit easier for us at, at Geelong or at least for the guys who had lived through those premierships. But if you haven't had one, and St Kilda is probably the one that, that springs to mind, they were so close, but for the bounce of the ball – you know, on a couple of occasions really, you know, could have easily won one. I think their list management planning might have been a bit different if they had a won one. But it is intoxicating when you've got that prospect of just going one more time or, or another time. Um, so it was, it was to an extent, it was easy. A new guy come in and say, okay, well, you know, th- this is the direction I would take. And fortunately, um, you know, the, the others did as well. But the alignment of, of values um, – was was a significant part of it. But the most significant part was that they had a clear picture of the type of person they wanted and the, the values aligned, the strategies aligned, and they had a really clear plan on how they were going to support that young coach. Um, and if it, if, if it weren't for that approach, then I wouldn't be coaching Geelong now, I'm sure, because the traditional um, 
um, situation, you know, as you alluded to earlier, is cl- new coaches only get appointed when you know the club's broken and things need to be fixed. So the new coach comes in as a messiah and everyone steps back and go, right, you fix it. This was completely different. The, the system was really, really strong. There are a few things that needed to change and there was alignment on that and very cl- quickly it was established that there was alignment from the players as well, which was a huge relief for me. That was one of my big concerns. You know, Snotty nose, 34-year-old come in. Like, I was six months older than the oldest player. It was kind of like, hey, don't tell us how to suck eggs. Their approach was actually the opposite, um, which was, as I said, a relief. Um, but they supported me. They didn't come in and say, right, it's all yours, do whatever you want. Um, they made sure that they challenged me at the right times and um, probably um, stopped me from making a couple of mistakes every now and then. Not huge mistakes, but but certainly had enough um, awareness to kind of question things and get me to think about things a little bit more before we actually push the button on certain decisions. Did you also have a plan for the human impact? So on yourself personally, like how are you going to set up mechanisms so that you can cope with the pressure so you can still, you know, look after yourself and also the people around you, so friends, family? Yeah, no, no I wasn't so good at that. Um, and still aren't. I'm more aware of its importance now than I was back then. Um, in a way, my kind of coping mechanism was to accept the fact that I'd get sacked at some point um, and that I'd, I'd be okay with it. Um, it's hard to influence the impact that that has on the people around you, but I guess it was kind of at that stage I was like, well, I'd rather be a sacked head coach of Geelong, um, you know, than an unsuccessful assistant coach, um, you know, a team that wasn't making the finals. Um, so that was part of it. Really, it didn't, it didn't, um, I didn't give it enough thought and, and now I give it a, a, a little bit more, but again, try to make sure that, um, you know, that it doesn't consume me because there are some realities that you just won't change um, irrespective of how much you try to influence them or, or how how prepared you are but I jumped into coaching my workflow now is completely different to when I started um, and part of that was because you kind of like I think everyone's starting a new job you, you, you sort of need to show and I still I believe this is true when you first start you need to show hey I've got a level of work ethic here and I'm invested in the place um, and as I've sort of evolved I've worked out and I think you need to work out what people are good at within the organisation. If you wait for too long to work those things out and the answer is, hey, there's a lot they're not very good at, you end up being a pretty bad team. Um, but, you know, I've, it's always been a strength of mine to see the possibility in people and to delegate, um, you know, to, to people that I trust. And, again, you know, you talk about um, falling on your feet. I didn't bring anyone with me um, in terms of um, assistant coaches but arguably my best friend from Brisbane who was drafted in the same year as me in 93 was already there, Nigel Lappin. I knew Blake Carousella. He'd played at, um, at Brisbane with me. I kind of had these people that I implicitly trusted without having to go that, through that process of working out whether they were any good. I knew Brenton Sanderson was a good coach the moment I met him and, and probably before that from watching the way um, Geelong played. So the support system there was really good. There wasn't this need to um, to build a team from from nothing, as most head coaches need to do when they first start. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I got on onto that part, but I like it. it's sort of that, that idea of 
Um, I, I was talking about the workflow. So, you know, my workflow now is 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 as much about trying to um, to lead and think big picture and cultivate free space for, um, you know, the 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 high payoff stuff. You know, the stuff that really matters, as as opposed to getting stuck in the nitty-gritty because um, I don't think anyone can do it as well as I can. In fact, I'm certain that we've got a couple of coaches that do a lot of the day-to-day stuff better than what I would do it. Last question about coaching before I talk more broadly just about performance, but it seems to me that you're, uh, you're articulating that, that part of Geelong's success is because there is a system and the system uh, comprises many people and you're a big part of that system. Um, the public persona of a coach is that you are the system. So there's two things that seem to be going on. The outside perceives that you are like a dictatorial, or not you, but the Coaches. coach in general, <laughs> that, that you are the, the IP of the club and without you we're nowhere and so therefore when performance turns negatively, it's like get rid of the coach. But behind the scenes, the good ones are completely, well, are different from that. That you are, you acknowledge that you're part of a system, and that you need to delegate and and um, and influence people to then do your job. Yeah, absolutely. It's a truism that head coaches in most sports, but I can only really speak intelligently to AFL footy, get way too much credit, and they get way too much blame. Uh, but again, the Essendon situation has hastened a few of us, I think, um, to consider what the overall responsibility is. So the idea that um, you can just delegate without accountability uh, is setting yourself up for a horrible fall potentially. Um, so I would have said that the rate at which we work collegiately with a number of coaches, and it's not just the coaches, you know, not 10, 11 coaches, but huge sports science team and medical team and admin team, development team, welfare team, you know, the list goes on. Um, if, if it, because it's got so big, if you just say, well, I'm just going to let the baker bake the bread and have no oversight over what they're doing, if they muck it up, it's now more uh, um, acute for us that you're the one that will take, take the heat for that. Uh, and you can argue all you like, well, no, but our organisational chart says that this person's accountable for this, that the head coach has to be responsible. But if that um, results in um, an autocratic um, coach who um, wants to do everything and have control over everything, um, then clubs should save a lot of money and only have three coaches like they did in Lee Matthews' first year. Um, I think that'd be a, you get a poor outcome that way because there are so many good people in footy that know what they're doing. So the, the balance between using all your people but still maintaining, um, you know, an understanding of, of, of not exactly what's going on but the big picture stuff and, and cultivating an environment where um, people know when they should come and cover things off with you and when they've got the autonomy just to make the decision. And that extends to players as well. It's the, the players that one of the – we talked about coaches getting too much blame, too much credit. The, the, pl- the game day is so – frustrating as a coach, as a head coach, because the, the level of control you actually have is minimal. You know, the, there's still a prevailing view that, you know, that the coach influences the way a game goes, and there is a level of influence, but it's not much. 
the best teams invariably have drilled things to the point where the players make the decisions game day and the coaches are quality control. If there's something they really don't like or goes against what has been put in place during the week and tr- during the preseason, the, the coaches adjust that. But there's still the prevailing view that the um, you know, the coach has got to turn this team upside down if it's not working, um, you know, to pull a rabbit out of a hat. And the, the reality is these, that, that used to work because there actually wasn't much system in the game. You know, even, even 15 years ago, some of the really good coaches in the game would, you know, in my opinion, used to say, just, just go out there and play on instinct. Put your best players in their best position and just sort of let it all happen. And there is sort of merit in that a little bit. Get out of the way of the good players and let them do their stuff. But it's so much more systematic these days in the approach and really organised. So if you turn the team upside down, it may work, but more likely you're just going to end up disorganised. That concludes part one of our chat with Chris Scott. Don't forget to listen to part two where we cover high performance and leadership as well as Chris's personal learnings, habits and influences. This interview is syndicated with our sports podcast, Off Field, where we focus on the world of sport outside of the arena with the people who make it happen. Visit offfield.co, that's off-field.co, for links to subscribe. Thanks for listening to Rooster Radio. Connect with us at roosterradio.biz. Thank you.